Morning, everybody. I would like for you to look with me at the scripture that I want to use today, found in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, first four verses. But I think <clears throat> it's necessary to read chapter 1, it's only 14 verses, to set the stage for. 2, 1 through 4. So, <clears throat> if you'd follow along with me, I'm reading this morning from the New English, or the English Standard Version, beginning in Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that's Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand with the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, quote, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, that's angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, that's why I read chapter 1, is the word therefore, on the basis of all the preceded and what he said therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, which is the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Now those four verses of chapter 2, and the this comprises the first of at least four or five passages in the book of Hebrews that are called the warning passages. They are specific warnings and they are specifically directed to believers. These are warnings of 
staying away from being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, drifting away, neglecting the salvation, trampling underfoot. The Scripture says in Hebrews, the blood of the Son of God. If we sin against God in an unforgivable way, there's no repentance, so forth. Those are all in the book of Hebrews. This one, <clears throat> being the first one, is what I want to look at today and look basically at just the greatness of the salvation. Why does he call it that? And then the peril that he clearly lines out for us. So in verse 3, I want to look at it backwards. We look, if we take it in chronological order, we wouldn't speak of the great salvation yet. That's in verse 3. But I want to look at first the great salvation that is put before us. And in light of that is why he says we, we must beware of the perils of drifting away from it. Now, why is it a great salvation? What is there about what we have that we preach, that we read in the New Testament and in the Old, the Old pointing to it? What makes it great? We see in the first chapter the contrast between the word spoken to us by the Lord himself, by Jesus, and the word spoken by angels. Now, what he's talking about is in the Old Testament, the delivering of the law, the Ten Commandments, and so forth, were given by messengers, and in some cases by angels. The word angel means messenger. And that word was so binding that we all know, if we know anything about the Old Testament, the retribution, the judgment, the punishment, the, if you, I don't want to be disrespectful, obviously, to Scripture, but if we look at the harshness of the retribution and the punishment meted out in the Old Testament, Old Testament to people who broke the word of angels, as it were. It was severe. It was trustworthy, meaning you weren't going to get out of it. And the contrast that the writer of Hebrews draws is if, if this previous testament, this covenant that God had with the people of Israel, if it being mediated to us by lesser beings, in the case many prophets, Moses, so forth, if that law being mediated to us by lesser people was that severe and was never canceled and resulted in death early in the wanderings in the wilderness. There's just a short little episode where Moses and the elders weren't quite sure what to do in a situation. It said a Hebrew, the son of a Hebrew woman was fighting with someone else. And in the course of the fight, the fist fight, he took God's name in vain, used the Lord's name as a curse word. And it said they brought him unto Moses. What do we do with this guy? Moses went and asked God. Anybody ever read what God's reply was? Well, he's been around that. Of course, it's Wyoming, and we cuss like that in the ranches and stuff, and everybody. No, he said, stone him. No one survives that. You understand me? The writer then is saying, 
in light of that, now who's speaking to us? The Lord, the living Word. He upholds the whole world, it says, the universe, by the Word of His power. Why? Why is this, what's the significance of the Word? Because He is the living Word. Jesus is the Word of the Lord. Clothed in flesh, visited us, died on our behalf, rose from the dead, is seated at the right hand of the Father today, where He waits and ministers to us, waits for the end of the world, intercedes for us, praying for us. If He spoke to us, how much more heavy are the penalties and how much more sure are they? Here's why this is such a great salvation and why therefore the peril of missing it is so great. One, the greatness of this salvation that we have is due to the author. God's the one that planned this. Men didn't get together, put it together. You'll notice every single religion that is false, that's a product of men, of mankind. Men always create a God, whether it's all of the, all the thousands of gods that men falsely worship. They are always made in the image and likeness of their makers. When humans invent objects of worship, those objects of worship reflect the people that invented them. You understand me? The Roman, especially the Roman and the Greek gods, were just like the people. They had a god, Bacchus. I couldn't name half, there's hundreds and hundreds of their gods. But some of us have probably heard of the god Bacchus, the god of drunken parties. <laughs> well, who invents a god of drunken parties? People who go to drunken parties. People that love that. So they turn around and they concoct a god who's like they are. See the huge shift? God said, I'm going to make a man and a woman in my image and in my likeness. We, when we reject that God, we flip. And then we come up with, we create, we invent gods that are like us. And coincidentally, they can't do too much to us, and we don't end up accountable to them. The gods that mankind comes up with won't have a great day that this verse is always awesome to me. And I saw the dead, small and great, the important, the non-important, standing before God. Then there's a period. And then there's one short sentence, and the books were opened. Now that ought to make your hair stand up. And the books were opened. And it says, all those who were there were judged out of the things written in the book, whether they were good or whether they were evil. Isn't it interesting that the gods we cook up never call us to account? 
But those are false gods. They're fake. They're figments of our imagination. This God is the author, the God who created heaven and earth. Psalm 33 uses the phrase, simple phrase that said, he created all the hosts of heaven, all the stars. Think of it especially, we're privileged out here where we don't have so much uh, pollution. Even in the city, we can go out and see the mass of stars. It's just takes your speech away. Remember Psalm 33, the next time you look at that, it says, He created all that by the breath of His mouth. He didn't pack together stuff and make each individual star. And I was thinking about this the other day. You know, the climate wing nuts. You know what the sun is? A burning ball of gas. It's fossil fuel. <laughs> if you want to look at it that way. And I don't know what they're going to do to put that fire out. That's hard to reach. God's the author of this salvation. No one else, no one else could come up with a plan that would save us from the depths we're in. So God's, this is a great salvation because of the author. Second, it's a great salvation because of the cost. God didn't offer another being for our sins. He stepped in and took the penalty for sin himself. And it was the penalty for sin legislated by him. He's the one that's the judge. And he sets the law and he sets the punishment for breaking the law. And then he turns around in our case and pays the penalty for that breaking of the law that he put into place. The cost then, it cost God the death of his son. The Charles Wesley hymn, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That, you know, there's no answer to that question. It's amazing, and that's all we can say. It is great, it's a great salvation because it saves from great sin. Sin enslaves us to Satan, enslaves us to the habits of sin. Jesus simply said, he that commits sin is the slave of it. We, it is tragic. We look around at our culture and we're overwhelmed with people that are enslaved to sin and gripped in habits cannot be broken. And the pitiful efforts that we put forth mean well, but we put forth these efforts to rehabilitate. We spend billions of dollars trying to help people break this slavery. And how, how frequently do we relapse and we, tr we back up and try it again? Our efforts are so puny and sad. We deal with this almost on a daily basis. It, it breaks your heart. But what's the problem? No one will identify the source of the slavery. It's not just physiological, though it is, but the deeper kind of slavery 
spiritual darkness. And we're taken captive. Romans says, we are taken captive by the devil to do his will. There is no rehab program that will cure that except this. And I'm not against all the help we can give. I'm not saying that. But to get to the core of the slavery is spiritual. It's not of this world. Therefore, this salvation is not of this world. And that's why Jesus told Pilate, I know that he wasn't, I don't know if he was dismissive to Pilate, but he recognized he was talking to a person who didn't get it, and he said, my kingdom isn't even of this world. The whole fight's not of this world. I tell you, it's the squad, that's who it is. It's the progressives, and if we, could defeat, if we can defeat the Democrats, and if we can get the Supreme Court, listen, won't do any good. I want to see that happen. I see it as a symptom of God helping us. But listen, get rid of every form of sin there is that we can get at, that we could burn down or we could shut down or that we could outlaw. And we'll have seven billion people with a full-grown crop of sin in their own hearts. And 15 minutes after the last fire's put out of burning up all sin, we'll have it again. Because the problem isn't out here. It's in here. It's in here. The 500 probably years at least of what's called the monastic movement, the monasteries and early Christianity, the theory was if we can flee this wicked world and hole up in a convent or an abbey or something, we'll escape all this. We'll pray all the time and we'll, we won't talk. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll be free from it. There was one huge problem. Everybody that went through those gates and took, that, took those vows carried the problem into the convent and the monastery in here. And so it wasn't but not very long. And the monastery movement, which was designed to be a reformation movement, a revival movement, to get things back to where they were supposed to be, it then became the subject of reform movements. We've got to reform the monasteries whose job was to reform the church. Why? Because this is a problem. It's in here. And only God can reach that deep. This is a great salvation because it's saved from great sin, the slavery to Satan. And I want to say this. The longer I go, the more I realize what I didn't know when I first started out in the ministry. But I imagined you know, that there were people all over the place that had committed the unpardonable sin. Mostly anybody, you know, that voted against what I wanted to do on the board. Um, you know, uh, they've committed the unpardonable. I used to think, boy, there's a lot of people around. I, I don't know if I've met but one or two in all the years I've pastored, people who are so hard that they don't even respond to God at all. At the same time, I've met an awful lot of people who have participated in and done terrible things. They're forgivable. It is a total lie. Remember, there's two great big lies the devil tell you. Before you do it, he'll tell you it won't matter. And as soon as you do it, he'll tell you that it's so bad that God will never talk to you again. We have a salvation that delivers from great sin. Read the list of people in the Scripture, even that God used, and 
Interestingly, read the list, the ancestry list of Jesus. He wasn't born of the flesh. We know that. But what a rogues gallery of people that are in the list of ancestors of the Son of God who took on himself human flesh. There is nothing other than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which I think the Holy Spirit strives desperately to keep us from ever doing that. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a deep hard-heartedness and, and wickedness and coldness. But on the surface level, just think about this. I don't, didn't mean to say this, but it comes to my mind. We hear people cuss up and one side and down the other. God. God this, God that. We hear people, Jesus this, Jesus Christ that, Christ this. Ever, ever, ever heard anybody use the, name, the phrase Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost as the old language as a curse word? No. I think it's part of the Holy Spirit's last ditch to keep people from going over that edge. So I don't care how bad we may think another person is or may think ourselves, oh, God couldn't forgive me. Yes, He could. Yes, He will. Yes, He does. Yes, He has. Yes, He has. And He makes us brand new people. He said, you can't beat Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he also promised us in this very letter, Hebrews chapter 10, your sins and iniquities will I remember against you no more. So, if your old life is brought up before you with a sense of guilt and shame and humiliation and worthlessness, and uh, you know this. It can be just the files in your own brain. Number two, it can be vindictive other people who know about your past and dredge it up on you. Three, it's the devil, but it's not God. Ever. Ever. When you're taunted, and haunted with that, it's not God. Because he said, I won't mention it to you again. Boy, I'm grateful we've got a God like that. So I'll never, I'll never talk it up, never bring it up to you again. It's gone. That's a great salvation. It's great because it saves from the greatest threat the greatest possible danger, and that's hell. Eternity cut off from God. It saves us from hell. We don't preach about hell anymore because we know better, of course, than Jesus, who incidentally spoke more about hell than anybody else. Jesus was one of the most graphic, hellfire, damnation preachers that ever walked this earth. But we know better today. We don't ever mention anything like that. Everyone's got to feel good. They've got to go home. They face a bad world. We have trouble out here. We're heavy-hearted. We're yes, we are battered. But the my my dear father, if I had a dying forever time, I heard him. He said, "There are going to be people in hell." chasing their preachers all over the place, throwing red-hot coals at them because they lied to them. They painted a picture of sin as nothing more than kind of a passing skin rash, and they never talked about hell because we don't want to trouble anyone. Everyone needs to be built up. Listen. I had a man talk to me once. I went to call on him, and he, they'd visited church, and they were a little upset. They said, well, there's just, um, we just think things are a little bit too intense. 
And borrowing from a statement I'd read, I didn't think it up, I said, listen, Judgment Day is going to be pretty intense. When those great books are opened, and it strikes me that I know I've not escaped, it is written down there. He knows. You have that whole scene of people that said crying for the rocks to fall on them to cover them and hide them from the face of who? And they uses the proper term. Jesus will be our judge. Hide us from the face of who? The Lamb. When we think of the Lamb, what do we think of? Meek and mild and so forth. Listen, Jesus came to this earth meek, mild, didn't retaliate. But the second time He's returning, it's not going to be that way. He comes to judge. So, it's a great salvation because it saves from the greatest possible danger. It's a great salvation because it exalts redeemed souls clear to heaven. He can take us from the gutter, literally, and stamp us with His image and hose us off and clean us up and change us from the inside out and ultimately give us a home in heaven with Him and the angels. That's a great salvation. And it's great in its confirmation of the truth of it. Jesus raised the dead, touched the eyes of the blind, and they could see. Spoke the word, and the deaf could hear. Walked on the water, multiplied food for the hungry. Rose from the dead. Just a side note, if, you, if, if any of us ever want, if we ever doubt the wickedness of the human heart left to itself, I just can't, I can't grasp it. If I was there and I saw Jesus tell him, roll away the stone from Lazarus' grave, Ah, he's been dead so long there'll be a stench, they said. We can't do that. He said, roll away. He stood there and said, he he just cried out these words, Lazarus, come forth. He walked out, bound still with the wrappings of grave clothes, and then his second command Loose him. That's symbolic. Loose him and let him go. All the hindrances and the binding of my own life, old life, he said, get rid of it. Let him go. There's the deliverance we're talking about. That's deliverance. What did the Pharisees do? They got together and they held a council and they seriously talked about and schemed of a way to kill Lazarus because he was evidence of who Jesus was. And that meeting about let's kill Lazarus was a part of a bigger discussion, which was we got to kill Jesus. (laughs) Not only is sin wicked, but it is profoundly stupid. Someone who can call to a tomb and bring a dead man out? (laughs) How are you going to put him to death? (laughs) All you can for some hours on a cross. But it's like Peter said, death, it was impossible that death should hold him. You can't put God to to death. This is a great salvation because of the great power with which it was confirmed. So we have all the evidence we need. Now, all of that is what 
the writer here, speaks of as this great salvation. Then he shows us two perils, and they're slightly different. The first one is in verse 1. We need to give, he said, pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. I think the King James uses the term, it says, lest we let it slip. Now, the, in, the word here, it, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where this particular word is used, and it's translated, drift from it, let it slip away, let it drift away from us. It's a bit, not vague, but it can be looked at several ways. But a good illustration or, or a good translation is an old one. Sometimes the, the word glide is used, and it's speaking of water and a craft floating on water that is just lazily, not talking about class five rapids here, in, in some kind of a ship on smooth, easy waters, heading toward unknown, some kind of falls. But at this point, it's smooth and glides along. And the picture is you glide past a harbor or a place to tie up and secure your ship. But you glide past it and you don't even realize it. That's, that's an interesting picture. Lest we just, with the cares of this world, our mind is off of what it ought to be on, and we just glide along unaware that we slipped past the last place we could have tied up to save us from disaster. I think often of the blind man in Jericho. He called out, when he hears a crowd, he called out, he says, what, what's going on? They says, Jesus of Nazareth. And he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, meaning I acknowledge you as the Messiah. Help me. And they told him to be quiet. Interesting, a fickle crowd. They said, shut up, don't bug him. Be quiet. Well, he cried out, it says, louder. He wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't humiliated with his need. He saw, I have an encounter with Jesus. He's the only hope I've got. Jesus stopped and said, call him. The same crowd, the same crowd. They run over to him and says, oh, oh, Jesus is asking for you. Yeah, yes, this is good. They're the ones that told him, shut up. And he didn't, and he got the result, and now they think this is great. And he came to him, and Jesus asks him the obvious, but God always asks us the obvious. What do you want? What a question. Well, I'm blind. I'm a beggar, and I've been this way forever. What do you mean, what do I want? God requires us to identify our need and tell him, I need you, God. He said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Jesus said, okay. <laughs> you have it. And he did. 10, 15 years later, surgeries, glasses, exercises. He could see out of one eye. No. That's not how Jesus heals us. He could see. Now. He can do that with the blindness of sin. But what do we know that that guy didn't know as we read that story in the Gospels? Jesus was passing through Jericho never to set foot there again. Unknown to that beggar. Probably only known to Jesus, though he tried to tell his disciples. He was heading to Jerusalem where he said, 
I will be tried. I will be convicted. I will be crucified. And the third day, I will rise again from the dead. They didn't understand it. That blind man, maybe he did through the Spirit, I don't know. But likely, he didn't recognize, this is my last opportunity. That's what this word means. Don't let it slip away. And the word here too, as far as a verb goes, it is passive. Meaning, this is not talking about, I hate God, I'm an atheist, I'm going to be a Satanist, I'm going to, you know, whatever. There's none of that in this word. Lest we let it slip. There's no hostility to God, necessarily, but what it, it, it's indifference. It's just indifference. I've talked to so many people in my life, a few, really, it's the minority. I've had a f- very few, I could probably think, think of three or four times, I've had a door slammed in my face or people really mad, you know, that I talked to them about coming to church or whatever. The vast majority fit in this first category. They don't hate God. They just don't pay attention to Him. Yeah, I'm not much for religion. I went to Sunday school when I was a kid, and my parents kind of made me go. And so I just, I just think, you know, as long as, long as you're do good to one another, do good and you'll get good. But thanks for the invitation. That's what this is. It's a benign, decent sort of indifference. Lots of people take that route. The next word is in verse 3, the word neglect. How shall we escape judgment and punishment if we neglect so great a salvation, the, the first word, let it slip away, is passive. I'm not active in it. This word neglect is active, meaning I do something. But notice this, what am I doing? Well, I'm an adulterer. I'm a chainsaw murderer. I'm a human trafficker. I'm a drug cartel boss. No. This does not imply any of that. It's just I maintain my attitude. The first person half isn't even aware. But this neglector is the person who resists. And I, I no thanks. Let it slip through my fingers. Yeah. You can't do that unless you do it on purpose. So there is a resistance to the Holy Spirit's still small voice tugging at your heart. And we just, ah, later. Later never comes. I remember preaching a funeral dealing with a situation of, of um, very well-to-do woman and that's the kind of friend she had and they were in all the right clubs and all the right everything <clears throat> and this woman by the way had she'd gotten saved literally two or three hours before she died and her her daughter attended my church and she and I prayed with her and she was able to let me know she was able to whisper yes I trust Jesus so I had a totally different attitude of this funeral and told all that one of her best friends said she was her best friend came up to me and got nothing because she was kind of jovial and kind of you know chuckling about everything says well and I'm not on to the denomination she mentioned. I'm just quoting her. She said, well, I'm an Episcopalian. 
But I never let it get in the way of my politics or my religion. <laughs> that's, that's that word. She's accountable because she knew better. But it's just, nah. That's the peril. The peril, frankly, um, if I were the devil, and I think we're right in, in understanding him, terrible, social, socially, let's say, unacceptable and wreckage-type sin is bad advertisement for him. He's far better off if he can have his slaves be basically decent, and, you know, they give to, you know, the family in the community whose house burned down, and they do this, and they do that, and they're always there, and they participate, and they're generous, and that's far better advertising for the devil, as long as they just neglect so great a salvation. The warning here, which I don't even have time to go into, but the warning, we have to remember this. The warning is primarily, not only, but it is primarily to people who have it. It's to Christians. This is not a, well, once you're saved, you're always saved. Be encouraged, no matter what. This was written, the word we, and brethren is there. Lest we neglect. How does that happen? Very quickly, in small ways. Just easing up on faithful Bible reading, prayer, the time shrinks that we spend. We settle for, clear back when I was in seminary, some a denomination came up with a thing called 7-Up. 7-Up was you get up in the morning, you spend seven minutes. Seven minutes with God. I mean you storm the gates of heaven in prayer for seven minutes. 7-Up was you read for three and a half minutes in your Bible, and then you pray for three and a half minutes, and you go out to face the next 14 or 16 hours or whatever it is on seven minutes. Um, and we never stick to seven minutes. It gets to be five, and then it gets to be, well, I'll pray on the way to work because I don't have time. And That's how we, by little increments, devotions, little habits creep in, little ethical things that we kind of drop. Well, we used to do that. We used to not do that, but now, well, maybe we're a little bit too wound too tight back when, whenever. And we just start easing up. That's how, like that first word, that's how we glide past without noticing. There's a great warning signs, and I think there might even be something that hangs across, I'm not sure. The Niagara River. Warning of a point beyond which you go, you can't get out of this and we can't rescue you. Don't just glide by. We're in dark days, difficult days. Tempest is high, current is strong. We have to do our best to pay the most, the more earnest heed, lest we let it slip. May God help us not to do that and to stay alert and at our post. And I'd rather err on the side of being maybe too fanatical um, I used to feel like if I overslept in, in, in college and you had to get up and be at chapel at 8 o'clock in the morning for a dull chapel. Um, and I always tried to read my Bible and pray before I got ready and went to chapel. And a lot of times, you know, you're up yakking in the middle of the night and so you, you, you oversleep. Hit the snooze 50 times. Well, then you scramble around, you go to chapel, 
and you go to class, and then you go to lunch, and then you got to go to work. And I felt like, you know, I would skip lunch so I could have, read my Bible and pray. Now, I think some people thought I was nuts. Sometimes I looked at myself and maybe I'm nuts. None of us need to give your opinion on that. But I, I, I didn't say this, but I almost felt like if I don't read my Bible and pray and spend, spend time with God before, if it's noon, I'm going to hell. <laughs> now, not that realistic, but it, man, I'm not going to, I don't want to do that. There's a bit of healthy fear we need to have that lest we let it slip. So wherever the Holy Spirit, and I don't know where that is, but He sure does, He is so good at just kind of tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, um, you're letting up here, or you're loosening up over here. Hey, come on. Just listen to it. That's all we got to do. He monitors us all the time, watches over us every day. You can't get Him to keep His mouth shut. Anything He doesn't like, anything He sees coming, He'll tell you. Just mind him. Let's pray. I think we'll just have a bit of music. Um, no singing, but Jessica's just going to play for us. And before we close in prayer, I do want us to just prayerfully, let's bow our heads. And if the Holy Spirit has prompted you about something, if he's just tapped you on the shoulder kindly as he always does, there's a place to pray here. And sometimes I think it's very beneficial to kneel at an altar, a place to pray, and go on record with God. Lord, I, I, I want to settle this with you. I thank you for warning me, and I want to listen to you. So we'll just listen to some music for a brief moment and you slip out and kneel here if you wish so we'll be quiet and be in prayer <laughs>